0: and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hoback Books as we combine trad values and an indie spirit.
1: Hello. Hello
0: and welcome to the Hopcast Book Show. I must turn my headphones down because I'm blowing my ears out. My name is Adrian Hobart. What
1: an image. My name's Rebecca Collins.
0: And together we run Hobart Books, UK independent publishers of the following genres. Crime. Suspense. Murders. Oh, you, you're doing a Scottish accent, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to figure it out.
1: <laughs> no, that was Liverpool.
0: And thrillers. Thrillers, that's It was right. Liverpool, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. Welcome to the show's episode number 142 for those keeping count. And uh, we (laughs) are delighted we're joined by author Stephen J. Golds, who joins us from...
1: Japan!
0: Yeah, Nagoya in Japan.
1: Nagoya, yeah.
0: And uh, he is a writer of noir, but is moving towards the softer side of crime, if there is such a thing, uh, in his later books. But uh, we talk about uh, life in Japan... The inspiration behind his writing—he was a late, late comer to writing itself because he struggled at school, and also, uh, dare I say, it, we go back to the subject of the uh, late lamented Red Dog Press, for which he was published.
1: Yeah, but he's also another one of those writers, and we've spoken to a few of these people who, um, like you say, don't have necessarily have the academic background didn't realise that they had it in them to write because of that idea that you have to be educated, mm. you have to be academic in order to be a good writer. And so, another proof that no, you don't.
0: I would argue that you do. Oh,
1: would you now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's because you went to posh school.
0: Well, we could end up sounding like um, Badil and Skinner. Uh, it wasn't Deal and Skinner, was it? It was um, Badil and Newman's. No idea. History professors
1: no idea what you're talking okay, about. Okay,
0: well, it was a sketch that they used to running in the 90s with these two old professors who used to then get into these very childish arguments.
1: <laughs> well, we do that a lot.
0: You see that pile of excrement. That's you, that is. That kind of oh,
1: I say that to the boys all the time. Yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, welcome to the show. We'll get into some news, and it's, it's sort of an eclectic mix. We'll pick up on a story that we had uh, mentioned a couple of weeks ago which was this idea that Spotify, who are a big player now in the audiobook market alongside podcasts and music and everything like that, were going to offer subscribers 15 hours of free content to entice them in. And our question, as providers of audiobooks, about a dozen to date, was, well, how do we get paid then?
1: Yeah, if, if we're part of that free content.
0: Right. Well, I'm not sure we necessarily are, but because we publish through Findaway Voices, which is owned now by Spotify, I dare say that uh, you know somewhere in the contract, very deep in the detail, will be something like this. But it's interesting that uh, a week ago, uh, Spotify did launch this with 150,000 titles, mainly from the big publishers. They've come up with a deal, which pleased Penguin Random House, etc., oh, etc., but then then ask, you know, but the the big publishers and Spotify really haven't spelt out to the people who actually write the stuff or narrate the stuff what's in it for them. And so agents are concerned, according to the bookseller, about the lack of detail on these streaming deals from Spotify.
1: Well, they would probably argue, wouldn't they, that what's in it for you as a writer? Well, recognition, um, you know.
0: Oh, la, la. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> that doesn't put food on the table, really. Um, anyway. Uh, Let's just have a look at this this article. So the agents are optimistic that Spotify's streaming deals with major publishers will help amplify authors and provide healthy competition to Amazon-owned Audible. But several have voiced concerns about how it may affect author income due to the lack of detail about the deals struck. Last week, publishers including Penguin Random House, HarperCollins and Simon & Schuster, as well as independents like Pushkin and Belinda, entered into limited streaming deals with the Swedish platform. The development, which publishers have had reservations about in the past, is part of the tech giant's efforts to enhance its, au- its uh, offer to compete with Audible. From the 4th of October, so last week, premium Spotify subscribers in the UK and Australia have been able to access up to 15 hours of audiobook content per month at no additional cost, Listeners can choose between – so it's every month, not just a sort of one-off, which is extraordinary. I mean, that covers – I've only recorded about half a dozen books longer than 15 hours myself.
1: No. (laughs) So, I mean, that
0: covers – you know, that gives you a fair run at almost every title out there. Yes. Unless um... it's epic fantasy or a big, long, non – yeah, there
1: aren't book. many there aren't many
0: audiobooks longer than that. Well you know so fifteen hours is the equivalent to hundred and fifty thousand words to put it in context. Oh right, and our our average book is around eighty thousand words. yeah, in Hobeck.
1: So it's one and, so be, two, it's nearly, nearly two, two books. books yeah,
0: exactly. So uh David Kiefer, who is vice president of business affairs at Spotify, told the bookseller that Spotify was working with publishers in slightly different ways according to the structures that best suited them. There is a pooling model for a segment of our partners, and generally it's partners who are slightly smaller scale, i.e. us, while some people, particularly larger providers, wanted to do something different. Pooling models give publishers a percentage share of total revenue a retailer, in this case Spotify, receives based on consumption. It's a bit like Kindle Unlimited in that regard. It is not yet clear what payment model will be agreed on with each publisher and there is a sense of uncertainty and concern around this from agents. Juliet Pickering, agent and director at Blake Friedman Literary Agency said, At the moment the audio situation feels fairly untested and opaque in terms of income for authors and we can't say for certain that we're comfortable with what publishers are signing up to on our authors' behalves but we also don't want our authors to be left behind so it's probably a case of let's try and see yeah well Well, it
1: doesn't inspire much confidence does it let's try and see
0: (laughs) yeah johnny geller ceo of the curtis brown group which is a massive agency told the bookseller that the agency is concerned about the impact that the pooling system could have for authors we are reviewing this very closely and our primary concern is whether the new model will chip away further at the royalty share to authors in this crucial and growing part of the market we would expect our authors to receive royalties based on purchased units as opposed to minutes listened. Yeah, but that's gone out the window now, <laughs> effectively. Well, let's see how it settles down, but you can see where the concerns have developed. Um, you know, it's it's very evident that no one really knows what is being signed up to. And uh, indeed, you know, our own experience of the, the Spotify machine was not positive when we found out that, you know, they were lending people's voices to to, to Apple no. and their AI narration system.
1: Well, I mean, uh, technology in in distribution, in production of of all these things of book. You know, you take a a book as a primary product. It's changed so much that I just think we can't keep up with it. So you know, they're saying all oh, the payment models. We're working it out. Well, you have to build time in to do this before you roll out these new mm. systems and.
0: Yeah, and indeed, you know, the, the the room for wiggle room for the providers in in Spotify. Look at all the Audible example. So, you know, it, it was it was a a big row, and it has been to some extent settled. But the big row about giving uh, people who get audiobooks a year in which to return them for a full refund, and then that refund costing the narrators, stroke authors, or publishers you know, money to fulfil when it was Amazon offering it um, was a huge thing. So basically people were listening to audiobooks, handing them back, having listened to them, and getting a full refund, which meant that people were losing money on audiobook productions, yep. which is, is appalling.
1: Yeah, because what's the point of doing them if, it, if it's a situation like that? So <laughs> I think
0: I think, you know, our general point of view at the moment is that, you know, while the big providers... Like Spotify Audible and indeed Amazon itself uh, have democratized the things in terms of being able to get it in front of people um, the, the content. it doesn't mean they're necessarily out for the little guy no. you know, in a positive way they're not they're not really no so um, you know it does feel you know that's something that uh, okay the agents are going to keep uh, try and keep the publishers honest, but whether or not that happens is, is open to question now next story is an interesting one, which is sort of tangential to publishing, I guess. But it, well, it's uh,
1: about an author.
0: It's about an author. Um, and we're talking about David Walliams. Now, I'll probably get us, us into the loads of legal trouble here. So David Walliams is, uh, for those who aren't aware of him, um, is a huge name in the UK. As an author, he is the best-selling author of enormous sh- shed loads of books mm,
1: we've got a few copies here also. yeah
0: which are very appealing to middle grade readers and indeed your boys have consumed you know demon dentists and whatever else the granny yeah things about headmasters and all that sort of stuff essentially Roald Dahl without the the class yeah is, is how he, I he's,
1: yeah he tried to, he's tried to be a sort of modern Roald Dahl
0: right and the, hugely controversial in the sense of the stereotyping involved, and um, you know all sorts of aspects to it. But it gets people who are not kids who don't normally read will read these David Williams, and he sells casquillions of copies.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I at the time I remember thinking it was a fantastic thing that you, he he was able to get, particularly boys has to be said because boys traditionally read fewer books than girls of that age, sort of middle grade fiction age
0: but david Williams's writing fame is on the basis of is on the back of his popularity as a comic performer mm. um with little britain in particular but before that he he was in a number of other things and and indeed uh is still appearing in, in british comedy shows and sitcoms and things like that
1: yeah, we saw him in something the other day, didn't we? Some we did. Weird yes, comedy set in the, at the seaside. That's
0: right. Yeah, I'm <laughs> trying to remember the name of it now. It's sort of I'm I'm scratching around for it, but um, yeah. So he also has a profile, or did, with Britain's Got Talent, which was one of ITV's biggest shows. It's created and run by Simon Cowell, and uh, there was a big falling out. As we, I think we discussed it. Yeah, the we broadcast. did mention it. Yeah, he yeah, did. where David Williams. Um, was recorded, basically, you know, the presenters are wearing microphones the whole time.
1: Yeah.
0: And he called one of the contestants, an elderly contestant...
1: A, a very mean word.
0: A very mean word, beginning with C, three times. And this was leaked to the newspapers, the transcript <laughs> of what he'd said. And then he said something very derogatory about someone else as well. And he, this damaged his reputation, clearly, and he got dropped by the show. Subsequent series, and now he's been replaced by Bruno Tognoli He used to be a Strictly judge.
1: I get him mixed up with um, uh, uh, the chef on this morning. <laughs> <laughs> look, they, they sound and un- look the same.
0: All right. Well, yes. Um, thinking of uh, Gio Campo. G- Gino de Campo. That's
1: yeah. it. <laughs> <Gio> Campo <laughs> Right.
0: Okay. All right. Well, well, let's let's get back to David Williams. So he is suing the creators of Britain's Got Talent, which is Fremantle for £10 million. And he claims that he's lost his ability to be funny after his exit from the show. Now, some would say (laughs) he wasn't funny in the first place and it was just crude humour and all that sort of thing. But his... Let's get to the specifics of it, Okay, He is uh, saying that uh, the court documents filed against the programme's makers allege some of his private conversations during filming days were recorded without his knowledge or consent. Well, we used to have a rule in broadcasting, which was if there's a microphone nearby, I assume it's live.
1: Oh, yeah. well, I mean, anyway, you should be careful what you say.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Insulting people is... Yeah, I mean, it
0: was deeply offensive what he said about this person. And, you know, <laughs> you banged her rights, mate. But he now says that the eventual exit from the show left him with suicidal thoughts. And The legal documents also include allegations by uh Williams that Fremantle carried out a data breach uh he, you know got out there into the public he resigned from the program when a transcript of comments he made uh was leaked to the public as we said that was in November 2022 uh, that he made those comments now um the he wants a three point he wants 1.7 million in lost earnings from the last year from ITV, he uh, wants also an additional three point four million to cover future losses over at least at least two year period, taking a total six point one million. Then the remaining money is unspecified damages for psychiatric harm, distress, and upset caused, and legal costs. Walliam's legal filings claimed that his yearly earnings dropped from three point seven million in twenty twenty two to just one hundred one thousand eight hundred in the first five years, five, first five months of this year. You, you sighed.
1: Uh, because I find it hard to be sympathetic when, you know, I work every single hour I'm awake, more or less, for a fraction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's no justice.
0: Yeah. And his lawyers also say he feels vulnerable on entering a studio because he fears that what he says and does in that setting may be recorded and leaked without his consent. Because of the constant concern that any unguarded comments could be used against him... He's lost the ability to be spontaneous or edgy, in short, to be funny.
1: There's a difference between being spontaneous, edgy and funny and insulting. I'm sorry, but that, that's weak.
0: Mm. Well, we shall watch that case with, with interest. I, I, I do wonder whether, I mean, he has shot back up to number one whenever a new book comes out from his children's books. So... You know, I don't think it has necessarily affected him too much, but there must be some parents who won't buy the books because of what that says about, you know, how he behaved. I don't know. I, anyway. Look it, it
1: wouldn't stop me buying the books if if isn't, my, it,
0: isn't it fascinating though? I mean, you know, if you <laughs> I mean imagine if he won. I mean, ten million quid. Um but uh yeah, I have some sympathy in the sense that you know, I have you know, I I was accused of the BBC of making inappropriate comments, which, you know, I never got told what they were. So, you know, and I still have this legacy thing that goes on in my head all the time about it. You know, I'm not having any closure about being able to defend myself on this. But it 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 is, nonetheless, you know, you're back to rights, mate, on terms of what you said. Whether or not it's had those other impacts that you claim, it's open to question.
1: Yeah, but he's saying it stopped him being spontaneous edgy and funny i don't know why i don't know how being caught insulting someone stops you being funny Mm. so well
0: maybe it just made him think about what the impact of what he says and maybe there's no bad thing yeah and i need to think that too so yeah i mean that's interesting okay those are our our two big stories i mean yes (laughs) it was tangential to publishing but I, i wanted to
1: but i think it is it is related because like you say, it could affect his publishing career, but also it could affect what he feels comfortable about writing. You know, if, if he's... I suppose it also
0: has a wider thing about free speech. I mean, there's an awful lot of big debate, uh, GB News over here having sacked um, three people, or at least suspended one and sacked two others who been be involved in saying very unpleasant things on air live um, about a woman. It, you know, it... it, it tolerance for such behavior is very very well rightly very low at the moment yeah it's a, it's a changing culture okay uh well let's talk to stephen j golds over in nagoya in japan and uh, stephen has written a number of novels noir very sort of hard-boiled dark fiction yeah dealing with uh, with mental health at the sort of core of those stories and was published by Red Dog Press until, of course, sadly, Red Dog a few weeks ago had to announce that they were closing for all the reasons that we've talked about in the past, Yeah, which, you know, the difficulties for independent um, publishers are multiplying. Um, and uh, it came to a natural end. So he is looking to place those books with other people at the moment, but he's also starting a new series as well. But he has for many years lived in Japan. And Seventeen? So- 17. So it's an interesting thing, you know, um, how he has managed to uh, create a literary career from afar, if you like, in this country.
1: But the other interesting thing is it made me think of um, Waking the Tiger and Chasing a Dragon, the way he described how he felt because he felt like he didn't belong in J- Japan and Japanese culture, but yet he comes back to the UK and he doesn't belong here. Yeah. Just like Betancourt.
0: Absolutely. That's a very, very good point. And of course, with Rebecca's experience of teaching in Japan, they had plenty in common.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so we had a lot to talk about, didn't we? Certainly.
0: And that's how we start this interview with Stephen J. Golds. Well, it's a lovely and wonderful pleasure to speak to Stephen J. Golds over in Japan. Welcome to the Hopcast Book Show.
2: Hello, Adrian. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Um, I'm very happy to be talking with you today. I want
1: to know whereabouts in Japan you are because well, we've spoken offline before and um, because I spent two years there, a long time ago now. So whereabouts in Japan are you?
2: I'm actually in a place called Nagoya, which is central Japan. It's basically in the middle of Tokyo and Osaka and Kyoto. Yeah. So the it's uh, the location is amazing um, if you like traveling. But Nagoya uh, Nagoya's not one it's probably got the best food um, mm. in Japan after Okinawa, but it's not the most liveliest of places, I think It's one of the more um, I would compare it to maybe Manchester. I always tell my friends it's Manchester without <laughs> the music without the music and football.
1: I like that description. I used to do the same. So I lived in a town called Iwatsuki, which is in Saitama. And I'd say it's like Guildford.
2: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So you get those kind of comparisons. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Um, Because it's sort of that distance from Tokyo, sort of similar distance to London. So you could get on the train, go shopping in Tokyo for the day and come home. But it was commuter belt. (laughs) It was like Guildford.
2: What What is
1: a food speciality? Oh,
2: Nagoya people love really strong flavored foods. Lots of uh, miso. They add oh, lots yeah, of miso yeah. things. Uh, for example, miso katsu. And uh, there's Tebasaki peppered uh, chicken wings, which are really delicious uh, from around here. And there's also a Taiwan ramen. It's called Taiwan ramen, but it's created and made, invented in Nagoya, which is very spicy uh, ramen.
1: I love it's spicy one of, ramen. Yeah. Like Kimchi Ramen, mm, I the, love.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. Kimchi Ramen is really good too. It's very similar to Kimchi Ramen, but oh. um I'd say it's very similar to Kimchi Ramen, but um Nagoya definitely have their own style for food. It's um one of the best places to live for food. But also I, I also go to Okinawa a lot. So I'm in Okinawa maybe one month or two months a year, if mm. I have any vacation time. I um, usually rent out the same kind of apartment that I can rent for like a month or two months and hang out at the beach. And I really enjoy the culture there because um, it's American culture mixed with Japanese culture in somewhere like Hawaii. So it's such an amazing place. So actually, I just came back from there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I didn't actually get to go to Okinawa, but it was one of my, I had two regrets when I lived in Japan. I didn't climb Mount Fuji and I didn't go to Okinawa because exactly how you describe it is how, you know, people described it to me. And I just thought that sounds like a fascinating place.
2: <laughs> mm, its uh, I'm hoping to move there, actually. Um, my daughters are 10 and 13 now. So I'm hoping when they get to high school or before high school, maybe moving to Okinawa. But um, at the moment, my job situation is completely focused here and they're living here. So I have to stay here at the for the time being. Now,
0: if you were in Manchester, UK, <laughs> the eating's not so great. It only has one Michelin star in the whole city. And they haven't had one. For, that was the first time in 40 years. But in terms of its cultural life at the moment, it is a real hotbed of independent writing. And indeed, music, yes, obviously, yes. it always has been. So does nagoya match that at all
2: not really there was a writers group that um, was around but the the person who was heading it passed away he was uh, an elderly uh, an elderly english gentleman uh, he passed away and the group kind of fell apart after that and i think there's three or four writers around that i know so um there's nothing like you know, nothing like what's going on in the north of England at the moment, unfortunately. But I'm hoping to, to be start the start of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping. I'm hoping, yeah.
0: But do you do you miss that? I mean, having that community? Because a lot of the people we've spoken to on this podcast rely on on their creative community to to sort of nourish the or feed the well or something or fill the well uh for creativity. Does that does that bother you?
2: Yes. Uh, I feel I often feel like I'm Tom Hanks in Castaway. But I have lots of, uh, I've made loads of great friends on on Twitter that have helped me a huge amount, but I miss the meetups. I miss things like uh, Bloody Scotland. But uh, when I went back to England in February, we did a large group meetup and like uh, Rob Parker, uh, John Bowie, BF Jones, a lot of writers that I know from Twitter all met up. And then hopefully uh, that was in London, but hopefully I'm coming back either Easter, I'm hoping, or summer, and I'm hoping to do one more or to organize one more meetup in Manchester this time, so it's more central located for everyone to get to last time London was quite difficult for everyone to get down for.
0: take us through your your writing journey because um I was struck I was watching an interview with you, and um the poetry is your was your gateway to writing mm-hmm. And I mean, that's been true of possibly half a dozen of our guests have started Mm -hmm. in that way and that they've taken what they learned from poetry through into their longer form prose and fiction. What is it about poetry that first attracted you? Because let's be honest, in the UK, and I know you've talked about this, Mm. you know, the, the education system. Tends to drive the love of poetry
2: out of people.
1: It's terrible. My my sons who are quite well read, they don't like poetry because of, they get taught at school and.
2: In high school, I was quite lucky. My high school teacher or my secondary school teacher, she introduced us to uh, Simon Armitage. Yes, yeah, Simon yeah, yeah. Armitage. I forget the title of the poem now, but he wrote a poem about an unidentified corpse being discovered and. They're taking in all of the items that were found with the corpse. It's a very plain reading poem, but there's so much power behind it. And uh, we read a lot of, uh, is it Carol Ann Duffy? We read yeah, a lot yeah, of her very... as well. And then what really changed my life was um, when I was about 17, I really got into writing big time. And I used to go to secondhand bookshops or Oxfam and, the charity shops and I used to buy secondhand books there and then one day I found uh, Charles Bukowski on the uh, on the shelf and then that book was called Post Office which yeah, is, I've is read like, it. yeah so he r- really introduced me because he was primarily a, a poet as well mm. so I started writing poetry and then poetry led to short stories I was only about 18 at the time and then my lecturer at university was amazing she said oh you're really good you really have talent here you should follow it and she really pushed me and then after university I I came to Japan and I completely stopped writing everything altogether I didn't write anything and I was too busy basically to do any kind of writing and then all the free time that I had was spent trying to learn to communicate Mm. Um, and then in 2019 I was having a very rough time. I started writing poetry. I started writing short stories and I started writing a novel which had been stuck in my head for about, I don't know, about maybe 12, 12 years or something. And um, I was waiting for someone to write it for me because I didn't believe I had, you know, I could sit down and write a novel. But at that time, I was just feeling like I needed to use writing as a kind of um a therapy mm-hmm. so I started writing as an act of therapy to help me with uh, certain mental problems that I was having and um that one novel turned into another novel turned into another novel and I think about a hundred short stories hundreds of poems and then it's just kind of snowballed really but um Like to go back to your original question, writing uh, or poetry taught me to write something as powerful as you can using as few words as possible. And then I moved that into writing short stories. And then with my novels, I write sentences, Something write something beautiful in an ugly way or write something ugly in a beautiful way. I, I, I tried to write. That was kind of my motto writing but i love so that. I think that's a poetry... good way to describe mm-hmm. it
1: because you do have to write ugly things when you're writing a novel and so if you can write them in a beautiful way that is that is quite a skill and also the opposite <laughs> i like that
0: yeah and i think that i think there is a it's an interesting cause, by the way i wanted to just cut in and say uh the poem by simon armitage is about his person uh, okay just uh yes, yes. People, <laughs> which i'm just looking at now and it's is fantastic isn't yeah it? no i um but it is that thing of when I was working in the BBC and writing match reports or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> people used to say to me, "How do you do what you do?" Because I used to try and put a cadence into it.
1: Well, same and with a, me when I was writing academic blurbs and, a, and academic a, books, right?
0: <laughs> and a sort of uh, you know, because in the nature of writing a match report, so this is the the, the you know purely practical sense if you've just got a minute of footage of a match football match to show on the on the channel which is what we were limited to even if you spoke for that whole 60 seconds you'd only get 180 words mm. to work with so mm. i used to work mm. on the basis that i'd probably have about 120 to work with so they had to earn every single word had to earn its place mm, and definitely. and one of the, the the key things there was because it's a you're trying to convey a meaning beyond the words you're actually saying in the way that you say them. Yeah. You would write with a certain cadence Mm -hmm. and, uh, it it almost developed to that. It was my meter, I suppose.
1: It's kind of a poetry Mm -hmm. in a way, isn't it? Because you know, what is poetry? It's, it's, it's not just the words, it's the rhythm. It's a, it's like you say, the cadence, the meter that is everything.
2: You know, sometimes I say it's a little bit like, uh, playing sports or, or like boxing right you've got to have the combos so a whole sentence you know it should be punchy it shouldn't be drifting off into you know rapid descriptions that aren't that aren't needed or aren't necessary so it really took me it really or well, it taught me put into the novel put into the paragraphs what's needed for the story and nothing else Mm. to be kind of brutal about it Mm.
0: but in a sense that's I mean you're writing noir and the hard boiled approach to writing uh innovative you know before and after the war in the United States is exactly that you know just pare it down to Mm. the to what you need to deliver that story
2: that's it that's it um yeah and I kind of feel like uh, I've developed my own style with it um So, so far, I've done four novels. I did the trilogy with Red Dog. And then I did uh, one more, which was about mental health and time travel and uh, a crazy love affair, which I did with a a specialised indie press called Outcast. Those are like my, my four babies. And now I've done my experimentation. I'm ready to go and tried, I'm actually writing a novel now. It's based in Japan, which I hope is casting my net as wide as possible to, you know, to a much wider audience. Uh, my other novels have been quite niche, I think. So yeah, um, hopefully it will help.
0: Mm. Well, I saw a tweet that you were saying that you were meeting up with some detectives and the approach.
2: Yes. Yes. It took a lot of negotiation to get them to agree to, to meet me. Basically, um, I teach. Uh, I in the evenings, one evening a week, I teach at a television studio, and they have their crime beat reporters. That I'm teaching English to, and the crime beat reporters have their connections, and uh, they know that I'm a writer. And I said, "Look, can you guys hook me up?" And um, one of the um, more senior members said, "Well, look, I'm friends with a couple of guys who are retired, so let's have coffee or a beer." Um, so hopefully it's in, in a week's time or two weeks' time, hopefully. So I'm not really going to put too much of it into my novel, but there's some key things that I really need to know. I don't want to go into it blindly. I'd rather yeah. do proper research. Mm.
1: Exactly, Yeah. So It's like a fact-checking exercise as opposed to um, mm-hmm. influencing the plot.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. You're talking
0: about broadening your appeal um, you know, with this next project that's that's quite a a leap to do isn't it because it it, in a way we we as sort of creators and artists sometimes want to cling to you know i want to do my authentic thing as opposed to my commercial thing so what was the mind shift between making that you know transition from the 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 first four books and 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 what you're thinking now
2: Uh, it's uh two factors Uh, i think this new novel, the story that I want to tell, it won't have the darkness that all of my previous novels have had. And all of my previous novels have dealt with uh, mental illness at, at some, some level. So there's an attraction towards that darkness when you're perhaps that worldview. This one is, I'm stepping away from that so it doesn't have the, the mental health angle but um i want to keep it a little bit more lighter because there's only so many times you can submit to an agent or submit to a publisher and they tell you you know this is too too dark for too dark to for us to put out you know mm-hmm. there's just not a market for it so i'm i'm not aiming to get into tesco i'm not aiming <laughs> you know to to blow up but it would be nice to maybe step away from very dark noir to just crime fiction or thriller fiction so hopefully hopefully it'll work but the main aim i want to do is i want to write a crime story but i want to introduce the aspects of japan that not that aren't really talked about very much um usually if i watch a documentary on japan or usually it's talking about the more zany or, or kooky things about Japan. Or if I read a book about Japan, often people talk about, you know, the the cliches of, oh, I had trouble with chopsticks or... <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> I went to a, a robot cafe or a cat cafe or something like that. So I, w- I want to do more daily life of, you know, living in Japan. I've been here for 17 years now, so I feel like it's perhaps time for me to write about the daily things that I love about living in Japan, but in a crime story.
1: I actually think you're you're at the right time because um I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot more books with a Japanese element or set partly in Japan around at the moment. A lot more than mm-hmm. there was even like three or four years ago. So and there isn't much in the crime genre, but I do think there will be an appeal for that. Definitely. I do. I mean, I've, I've been reading a lot of the sort of... Because I'm always attracted to books about Japan anyway. but um, So I was always able to find them because I was look, actively looking for them. But now, if we go into Waterstones, you see a lot more on the... on the But table. why do they always have cats on the front? No, there isn't. Yeah, there's a lot of that cosy <laughs> stuff. That's true. There, there is a lot of the cosy stuff, but not just cosy.
0: <laughs> I mean, this is a, a, perhaps a, a relatively difficult subject to talk about um, because it's so recent. And we talked about it at length when it became public, but
1: I'm, I have no idea what you're about to say.
0: Well, it's, it's red dog and uh, you were published yeah, by yeah. red dog press and sadly, yeah. Sean had to shut up shop um just a few weeks ago and, and, and wrote, I think very elegantly and eloquently about the challenges that he'd faced to the bookseller. Um, and I'm, I, it, but it still would have come as a, a huge shock to you as one of his authors and red dogs authors. Um, a few weeks on now, how do you reflect on on events and and where it leaves you?
2: Mm, I feel like I owe Sean everything. Basically, he he took a chance on my novels, which are if you if you read them, they are very dark. It's very dark literature, and he's always campaigned and he's always uh, cheered on my work. So I, I and he's also a good friend. So I just feel really sad that this is happening more, more than it should be. And it's happening, it's happening to everyone. It's happening across the board. And one thing that made me very sad was when he did do the tweet, you had lots of people commenting, oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's sad. Oh, no. But these weren't people who ever supported the press at all. So it feels like there's a lot of people who are, oh, that's tragic. That's very sad. But they, were, they weren't buying the books. They weren't necessarily doing anything to try and support it. So I just, I really wish the indie, the independent writing scene is we're all literally in the same boat so we all should be helping to keep the the boat afloat and i feel um i just wish everyone would pull together a little bit more and help support each other because i think i honestly do think independent publishers are publishing the most talented writers presently i, I feel um mm-hmm. and then with uh, if you if you go into somewhere like waterstones and you pick up a book or the books perhaps in Tesco, a lot of great independent writers have made it through, but then you also have ghostwritten books that are selling heaps loads or other books that are maybe, you know, ex-Big Brother contestant or, or something like that. Uh, they're getting the main places on the bookshelf. It's just a shame that there's not there's not more independent, Presses like yourselves breaking through, or you know, being boosted. Unfortunately, mm. Mm. yeah, but it was really, really devastating.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a very fair point you make because I think people, uh, you know, there is a lot of general um, support in terms of the concept, but not actually what really counts. Sadly, is is sales, and you know, people yeah, dipping yeah. in their pocket, and you know. But, you know, they'll they'll spend their whatever limited budget nowadays because of cost of living crisis and all that sort of thing. They'll wait for the next M.W. Craven, for instance. Um, and by that or Mick Heron or whoever, great authors, don't get me wrong, but not the indie.
1: Yeah, it, it might be they're just not willing to take a chance. I don't know. Mm. And thinking about the quality issue, because I i recently read um a book called Yellow Face, which I'd seen all over social media, this book Yellow Face. So you Oops, know yeah, yeah, no, it was um, penguin massive push. The last the,
0: the last three, four months it's been everywhere, yeah.
1: And it was good, but it was I've read far, far better books published by indie presses. It was good. I'm not gonna say it's rubbish because it wasn't rubbish, it was a good book, interesting concept tailed off towards the end so i would have if i was a structural editor i would have given some feedback but um that it you know it proportion the proportion of of sales for that compared to quality it's not realistic in my opinion
2: Mm. anyway
1: (laughs) but it's difficult so i
2: um, go on no i just uh you know every so often i do do a, a tweet every so often about support indie presses you know support the indie community Uh, but I guess it's a bit like the independent music scene or or anything like that it's always tough but uh, if you look at presses like yourself or presses like Orenda or Mm. a lot of independent presses they're really publishing fantastic books and I think once the word spreads a little bit further Mm. uh, a lot more people a lot more readers I mean not casual readers, I mean people who love books are already swarming towards the independent presses, so maybe that will continue in the future, and maybe things will get better. maybe it's a financial crisis, I don't know, but it's yeah. um i, I think um, I think
0: from our perspective, it's the uh the thing that dries up first, I think is to some extent, the joy
2: Mm, because, because
0: once, you know, I mean, it's always going to be the way with the business is that when you start it up, everything's fresh and new and there's an excitement, but you know, when you're battling to, to make months end month after month, and you're not taking a salary in our case, you know, that becomes quite difficult to keep that fresh motivation.
1: Yeah. The enthusiasm. And (laughs) and there will be, and
0: there will be little, I mean, we had, you know, We've had periods in the last few weeks, months, you know, where to, for two or three days you look at each other and go, why are we doing this? <laughs> <laughs> and then something will come along, whether it be, you know, uh, even if it's just an email from a reader saying, yeah. oh, I love that book, that'll be enough to lift you and take you to the next point because that's ultimately what you're trying to achieve. You're, you know, you're supporting authors, but also you're trying to p- put in the hands of readers something that's going to be of value to them. And when you get that feedback, that is sometimes enough. And clearly, money is <laughs> ultimately the the, the point yes, of this. Yes.
1: But being frank, if we were doing this for the money, we wouldn't be doing it. No.
0: So well, we are think... doing
1: it for for the love and for the for the dopamine hits from the nice <laughs> comments. Definitely, from
2: definitely. I I tweeted. I think maybe a month ago. Um, I tweeted out. Don't forget you know, editors, people who are running presses, they're people who are doing it in their own free time they're doing it at their own cost they're not making any money from it and, you know so that's why not just financial but also morale boost I think is needed because, uh, you know, I've been an editor or I am an editor of a punk noir magazine yes. and it, it can be it can be really tough being an editor, You you're doing it you spend all day uh, uh, you spend all day putting people's work out there and then you get a little response or you get someone oh there's a i just noticed a typo and can you sort that out for me now and or you're halfway through dinner you're on a dinner date or something and <laughs> someone wants you to fix a typo as soon as possible and I, I think that can be really tough as well for if you're running a press to feel that you're not you're you're taken for granted maybe i i I think you know yeah a lot of writers really fair point yeah
1: and there is an element of that and it does those emails do arrive when i'm eating dinner frequently well i mean i think i think the Mm. thing
0: is because you know when you get an email like that you feel like you've let someone down
1: oh yeah i hate that and and
0: it's such a small thing in the scheme of things but to the person who sent that email asking for oh i need this sorted out now kind of approach because it's really bugged them and they've Taking the trouble to to contact you, it does feel like
1: oh what f- oh
0: you know we we will look at each other and go oh what idiots we are or whatever and actually you know these things slip through the net yeah it's you know I was I've been reading a you know a book published by a major publisher and I have found so many type typos I mean to the extent that it's every two or three pages there's something absolutely egregious in there uh Mm -hmm. and and we know that we've put when we put something out we we have tried to weed out those things
1: yeah and and i mean and it's not just you though is it because we have editors read Mm -hmm. it we have the author read it we have our advanced team read it and things things do get through and then you have that feeling of
2: typos typos are a fact of life really aren't they Mm. you know you could read something a thousand times there's always going to be one that sits through I think I don't think I've ever read a book that didn't have a typo at least one one typo in it by any author I think no, that's same, true yeah. that's true
1: but it's the unforgiving nature of, of when are we when I see you see on social media all the time someone will say I've just read this you know big number one whatever blah book and I found a typo in it it's outrageous don't they have editors <laughs> no, I think,
2: it is uh, awesome. yeah I think yeah people I think I think I got some, someone mentioned that on one of my reviews or something, oh, there was a typo, you know, or something, I don't know. So, I think a lot of people forget, a lot of writers forget, I think a lot of readers forget who are dealing with indie presses. This is maybe just one or two people. Sean was, I'm sure, uh, as far as I know, doing it on his own. Yes, he yeah, was. So th- was
1: yeah.
2: And You know, so that's a a huge amount of time, a huge amount of effort. And he had a huge amount of office as well. So that's, I have no idea how he even found time to make himself dinner or whatever. So (laughs) that's why, uh, of course, I was devastated that it happened. And, um, you know, not quite sure how to go forward. But I don't, mm, I kind of accept it as part of life in writing these things happen and you know roll with the punches and get on with it and then I just always have the appreciation towards Sean um who's been uh, amazing throughout so
1: Mm. Mm. I mean uh, my experience with Sean is I I had a problem with Amazon and he got in touch with me and said because I tweeted about it I think and he, Mm. he got in touch with me and said we've had the same problem and I'll tell you what happened to us. And so we corresponded quite a bit about this thing and he was so kind and understanding. And it was almost mm. like, you know, we're in the same position. Yes. Okay. Yeah. In the business sense, we're kind of rivals, but actually we're not, we're doing the same yeah. thing. We've got the same issues, the yeah, same yeah. problems. So...
0: Totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. That, that that speaks for him, doesn't it? Um, talking about your, your magazine, um, Punk Noir, and I was just flicking through it and I, I was impressed by, uh, it's the first thing that came up. Were were very short stories, micro stories, almost flash fiction. Yes, yes. flash fiction written inspired by uh, music. So yes, yes, really. Um, I'm quite inspired by that, and 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 music's very important to you as well. With soul records, I believe being your your thing.
2: Yes, yes, but the feature edit, the feature editor uh, Scott Cumming is that he's his baby. Uh, we have basically a few feature editors, and they do one month and then they can choose whatever theme they want, right? And they ask for submissions based on that theme. So, uh, that's down to Scott. That's he's a uh, amazing, amazing theme where he's doing uh, short stories inspired by songs, which yes. is a great theme. But, uh, it, of course, it's called punk noir, so it's inspired by. All kinds of music and uh, mostly crime writing, and again, we're trying to give back to um, give back to the indie community you know because I, I I know what it feels like to get that email that says, "Oh, we love your story and we'd love to publish it." So yeah, hoping that we can do that for as many people as possible, you know brighten up brighten up their day and get there get their work out there. Yeah. And that
0: endorsement could make the difference between someone finishing a book and, and not, and, and, and becoming an author, you know, properly. Yeah. Cause they can um, say they're, you know, they're
1: published in published author, yeah. I should,
0: yeah. should say, because yeah. And we've heard that from, you know, people winning, even things like writing magazine, getting 150 quid for the, you know, for the story of the month or whatever it might be. Maybe
2: but, write yeah. Like yeah. It,
0: absolutely. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's, it's fantastic, but it's another huge commitment for you. So um, again, as you mentioned, um, it's one of those things where sometimes it's difficult to see where you take the pleasure from these things. But then again, you know, if you, you are, <laughs> but you know, but it's that philosophy that you've got behind it, which, you know, in a sense we, we feel with Hobeck, it's, you know, you're bringing, a, you're, you're mm. providing a platform for people to have their voice.
2: Someone, uh, Laura Heard, she's a Scottish writer. She's a Scottish femi- uh, feminist writer. And uh, when I was 18, um, I didn't know, this may be a little bit embarrassing, but I didn't really even know my alphabet until I was 11 years old. So I was in special education class to learn alphabet, you know, the last years of primary school. And um, I had a lot of trouble with the English language for a long time. Um, so writing, of course, was not my strong point. And um Basically, I think I was about 13. When I was about 13, I liked the movie Aliens. And uh, <laughs> I heard there was a novelization. Yeah, I was watching Aliens at a very young age. But um, there was a novelisation. I got it out from the library and I started reading it. And I read it many times. And then somehow that really improved my English reading, obviously. And then at the age of 18, I don't come from an environment of readers or writers. Uh, my dad is construction, and uh, my mum was a housewife. And uh, I think my dad mostly read the Sun, the Sun newspaper. But he was uh, into reading about uh, he was into reading about the war and stuff like that. He was a yeah. a, a veteran, and uh, he was an army in the army for a long time. And so, basically, I didn't come for that environment. But at the age of eighteen, I wrote a short story. Um, about um, it was a short story about a boy whose dad did uh, cockfighting, and there was this old uh, cockerel that was a champion that it was retired, and he gave it to his son. But then one day they brought the old cockerel out of retirement, and it got killed in a in a cockfight. I wrote that story, and I submitted it to Laura Hurd which was uh, she had this showcase that she had and she published it and it completely changed my life. You know, she said, I really love this story. And it was the first time anyone said, Hey, you know, you're good at writing. Mm. So I I want, I want to share it with other people. And until this day, you know, I just turned 40 the other day. And um, until this day, it's one of the happiest and maybe proudest, of course, after the birth of my, daughters but that it <laughs> completely changed my life. So I'm with Punk Noir I wanted to do that where I can give that opportunity or that uh, I can give that feeling to someone else, you know, whether they're published by me or by one of my feature editors. Um yeah, so it's not really it's not aimed at really making any money or, or it's really all about sharing other people's work, trying to get them an audience is so i hope that we've kind of achieved that somehow
0: mm. amazing story yes.
2: that's fantastic well mm. listen you've just turned 40 so now you are facing
0: <laughs> and you face many challenges not least you know setting up a life in japan but now mm. the ultimate rebecca's random question
1: okay now the, okay, coincidentally then. there's a japanese element to this question but it it's total coincidence i was um in the car with my middle son yesterday who's 17 We were on the way for him to have a flying experience. And he said to me, Mother, have you heard of the Japanese word that means you have a bad reaction to Paris? And I said, no, what's that? And I looked it up and I've got the Japanese word here. paddy shokogu, shokogu, apparently, which means Paris syndrome.
2: Yes, yes, Paris syndrome. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. And it's where uh, Japanese people have an overly romanticised view of Paris and then they go there and in, it completely destroys them. Where it's but, not how they imagined it at all. Mm.
1: They, there's a, it's actually a sort of psychological disorder because they can have dizziness, anxiety, vomiting, hallucinations, delusional states and even tachycardia as a result of going to Paris and being... Shocked at how different Well, I, I get yeah.
0: I get Telford shock or Well, go.
1: that's my question is, is there any place that you've, in your head, you've had a sort of idea of it, you've gone there, and then it's almost made you feel ill. It's been so different. So you've had, like you say, Telford syndrome. Have you, is there anywhere that you've had that experience?
2: Well, no, I lived in Luton. I lived in Luton. If you know <laughs> Luton, I, li- I lived in Luton for two years. Uh, so... I think Luton prepared me for for everywhere. I think. I think <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I've ever been anywhere I didn't really. I didn't really like. I think in Asia, I've been. I think Vietnam shocked me a little bit. Um, for example, in Vietnam, just crossing the road is a serious health risk. There's <laughs> hundreds of mopeds and motorbikes going, mm. and they don't stop. So you literally have to just throw yourself into traffic and dodge dodge these mopeds and uh, motorbikes, which was a little bit shocking. But no, I've, ne- I've never had anywhere that's really shocked me or disappointed me. Korea was a little bit disappointing, maybe. So I mm. think if you're... Uh, I found Seoul a little bit disappointing but um, yeah it was a little bit soulless actually once you get out of the city it's a little bit a little bit monotonous whereas in Japan one of the great things I love to do is ride not the shinkansen but ride the local train as Mm. I'm sure you know just Mm -hmm. riding the local train out of the city and just following the local train around you find some amazing little villages and beautiful little places like that so that's one of my one of my strange hobbies is riding the local train
1: i can understand mm. that because I, I used to catch mm. the train a lot um because i didn't drive or anything i like the school used to have two bikes where i taught at genki one and genki two so you, you <laughs> can take out a genki <laughs>
2: nice
1: and you see so cycle round, which i quite like doing just cycling around where i lived but mm. catching the train i loved it even when i caught mm. all the time because it just stops at all the little stops on the way <laughs> mm.
2: yeah yeah well, I, and
0: then, yeah. I mean, I, i've got two places that fit this bill and i joke about telford but um uh, los angeles um if you don't drive it's ho- it's horrendous uh, i was there in 1990 and had a horrendous 24 hours um lost and the other one was or I would say is lagos which i kind of expected to be completely chaotic but what i hadn't expected was the cheapness of life in lagos mm.
2: is so mm. bad
0: that there are corpses i mean you know when i was been driven around i was there for for covering a football tournament so i'm getting driven around in a an old mercedes or whatever um but there're just dead bodies lying in the road in, at night just everywhere um, unattended, mm. you know, uncared for, un, unburied and you know, people have just been run over or whatever. Um, just I couldn't cope with that. It was very that was dystopian in in the extreme. I can't
1: top that. I mean, I don't think I don't think there's anywhere I, where I've had high expectations and been met with. Can I
0: make a suggestion? Yeah. Okay, so when we went to Cambridge, which is my hometown.
1: Oh right, yeah. And I we went before though.
0: No, no, but when we went up the tower.
1: Oh well. I think there's ghosts in that place. That's why I felt ill.
0: So this is the tower. I, used to, <laughs> I, I was a tower cleaner. After my voice broke and I left the choir of this church in the middle of the town. There's a tower that's open to the public. 123 steps. And I used to sweep them. Um wow. in, my, in my sort of mid-teens. It was my, it was my Saturday job. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I took you up there. You
1: did. And, I and felt, you can I felt,
0: completely freaked out.
1: I felt hideous. I felt really ill. I had to get out. I had that sort of... A combination of sweating, anxiety, nausea, and I—I I remember I couldn't wait to leave the building. But I think there's some weird you, you force had, in there.
0: You had great St. Mary's Shokoku. <laughs>
1: I, I
0: maybe it was.
2: Uh, you, you had an experience in a in a past life on that stairwell. Maybe
1: I don't know what you it was, but I, yeah, I haven't often felt like quite as bad as that. And we had to go to a cafe. And I just... It took even... you
0: about an hour to recover, oh, a didn't bit it? more
1: than that. So then we mm. went back to the hotel room and I had to sleep and I just had to sleep. It was really weird. Mm. But I wasn't ill. I wasn't, no. like, physically ill. You had, you had a, you had it a... was definitely a mental reaction and a physical manifestation.
0: Wow. <laughs> so, Stephen, um, where can people find you online?
2: Uh, mostly uh, Twitter because I'm, uh, as you probably know, I don't really use iPhone or iPad too much. Uh, but I occasionally... I'm on Twitter mostly. Um, I think that's about it Twitter or email. So if you want to talk to me, please contact me on Twitter. And uh, I'm easy enough to find, I think.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, thank you so yes, much. Yes, thank
1: your time. you.
2: No, thank you. Arigatou <laughs> deshita. Deshita. Thank you. you. Yeah, I'll just say thanks. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, guys. Thank you. Very enjoyable.
1: Yes. And he's um offered to uh show us around Nagoya if we ever go indeed, that. and uh
0: actually, one of the sections I edited out of this interview because it was quite a long interview <coughs> was talking about uh possibility of joining that author get together in Manchester oh, proposing yes, for yeah, so we might get to around meet Easter then, time yeah, so who knows that'll be great. well, it was a pleasure to speak to him, and our guest next week is
1: um Jay. G. Kelly,
0: J. G. Kelly, and the book is.
1: I'm reading it at the moment, so I should know the title well, of the book. Well,
0: yeah, okay, no, no, I will find the title of the book, but um, it is, uh, it's uh, about it's a, it's a what if, if you like, um, yeah, it, speculative fiction in a way.
1: Well, it's sort of yes, it's imagining, um, if. So Scott uh, and his companions who um, died trying to get to the... South Pole. The South Pole. (laughs) The thing I love about this book, right, is it's. I I confess it's not something I would normally read. It's called The White Lie. The White Lie, that's it. And um, so it's a thriller, but it's it's a very sort of human thriller. Mm. Um, And it's based on the idea that um, if instead of... Scott and his companions dying because they just didn't, they weren't equipped or whatever, or you know, that there was a conspiracy going on. Now, I'm not going to say more than that, but it's based on that idea that it wasn't just natural causes.
0: We're talking about the 1913 expedition by Robert Falcon Scott, Captain Oates, and uh, various others to the South Pole, racing against Roald Amundsen. That's right, yeah. From Norway, who uh, relied on huskies. Whereas um, Scott had gone with motorized sleds and ponies, uh, which weren't really equipped for the, for the conditions. And the other problem that they had on their way to the pole is that they actually missed a number of their depots where they left supplies. Mm. So eventually they got to the point where they were in a blizzard and they starved to death. Yeah. Um, so it, know, it is one of the great stories of pre-First World War British pluck. And heroism um, and self-sacrifice in the way that Captain Oates famously said, uh, "I'm just going outside I may be and maybe some time," and never returned. And basically, to give his companions what little rations they had to stretch them further by sacrificing himself in the blizzard. Mm. Very, very famous um, story. And 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 it, 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 the way that it was portrayed. I mean, there was the the brilliant film. Um, which had uh, – oh, gosh, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, Mills, what's his name? Um, The great actor, John Mills, um, as Scott. It's a brilliant film. But this this spoke to, in many ways, the spirit of British colonial – values mm, you know. Definitely, yeah. Uh plucky explorers, you know, climbing mountains like um you know, people dying on the Matterhorn or whatever. Um, you know.
1: Yeah, it's that sort of determination. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and actually in many ways it was um the hubris involved in this expedition was huge. And I mean Shackleton was connected with with um, Scott and of course you know, they had the incredible story of how his ship got stuck in the ice and eventually they got rescued. And, you know, there's the footage of the ship getting crushed by the ice and, and all that sort of stuff. So it is it is one of the great um, sort of adventure stories. Tragic. But this is a reworking of it with a different spin.
1: Yes. So um, it's based on the idea that there was a diary, like a sort of a, a non-public diary of Scott and what's in that diary and who gets hold of that diary and what happens after that. So um, I'm looking forward to talking to um, JG. I've got this issue with J's and G's.
0: You do? (laughs) Is that from your time in Japan, perhaps?
1: No, that's R's and (laughs) L's.
0: Okay. Well, he's also the author of The Silent Child, uh, which, again sort of uh, his era spanning, you know, some of the books set in 19, 1944
1: and then 1961. But this is the same. It does span time. Yeah. So yeah. there was a really beautifully written scene quite early on in the book. There's um, a boy uh, we, who continues on in the book and he's later grown up. But when he's a boy, he's um, he goes to buy some sweets. He's, he's in London in the second world war. And he, and he just goes off to buy some sweets on he's doing an errand I think he's say he's posting a letter and he has a little detour to buy some sweets and um his um family basically get uh, bombed while he's out buying sweets and it's so beautifully written that the description of him seeing it happen on the you know where he lives and the effect it has on him and the, that sort of the', the sensations he's feeling the sights the smells the sounds everything um so yeah it's it's, i love that about historic fiction and we talked about mark whitman being very good at this as well being able to put you in that time and place with that character and Mm -hmm. feel it as they do it's very powerful
0: and he wrote as has written as jim kelly and has many many Crime books to his name, as yeah. Jim Kelly. No, he's, so. he's
1: he's very um, he's but also a bit a of a
0: recluse. So, this is a, this is a pretty special interview, I think.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Okay, so we're talking to JG Kelly next week on the show. Now, we ought to reflect on our weeks gone past. Oh, what a weekend you had! Well, I mean, a, a bit weekend like from Scott. hell, yes, so a bit like <laughs> well, a bit, yeah. <laughs> You're here, you, you know, you didn't not return,
1: no, but um, uh, if you if you could say scott and his fellow companions weren't quite prepared for what they were about to encounter
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> so let's just put this in context um and, and britain was it was a very interesting weekend weather-wise because you know great britain um uh, y- the unified kingdom uni- <laughs> uh, was divided by the weather and if you were north of the border as they say down here and in scotland You had a biblical deluge to deal with, which caused flash flooding and disruptions on the rails and a month's rain fell in two days.
1: Well, the story starts on Friday morning, no, sorry, Thursday afternoon, I went to the post office and I was very excited and I told the ladies, I'm going to Edinburgh this weekend with my middle son, we're going to the open day at the university and I can't wait. And they said, you're in for a great weekend. There's a heatwave coming, pack for summer. Now, any sensible person would have checked or double-checked the veracity of that claim on the internet. I didn't. I said to my son, Josh, pack for summer. You don't need a coat. It's going to be a heat wave, And we don't want to have too many things to carry because a lot of the time we will be carrying all our luggage. So we packed lightly. We didn't have any coats. We had summer clothes. And about... We got to Edinburgh at lunchtime on Friday and it was just cloudy but it was okay, and about two hours later, from so mid afternoon, the rain started, and it didn't stop until Sunday morning. Yeah, and so we 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 got very wet um, on the day of the open day, which is Saturday. It was raining very hard, uh, so we quite quickly realised we had to protect ourselves in some way because we did, also didn't have much in the way of clothing. Um, so we bought an umbrella. Um, which just about kept us covered um, between us. Both of us huddled under this umbrella. Um, But we found out on Saturday that um, all the trains out of Edinburgh had been cancelled due to the rain, and so we had no means to get home. So we had to book an extra hotel, an extra night at a hotel. And the only one we could find was a Holiday Inn Express on the outskirts of Edinburgh near the zoo. That's a vast expense for a tiny room with a double bed just about in it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, £319 for that.
1: Yeah, and Josh understandably didn't want to share a double bed with his mother. So he slept on the floor with the duvet. And I went to uh, Sainsbury's and bought a duvet cover and a blanket to sleep on the bed with. (laughs)
0: Jeez. Well, I was in Cardiff on Friday night seeing my son, James, who has spent three weeks there at university, and um, he's got impressive stamina, given just the number of night, big nights out he's had. Uh, it was great to see him. But it was boiling in Cardiff.
1: It, it, incredible, isn't it? Uh, we made it home yesterday. So the trains were running yesterday, but we had to get off the train at Preston instead of Crew, Then I get on another train that was unexpectedly stopping at Crew for all the people going to Crewe. And then there would have been another train to Stafford, but um, you kindly turned up at Crew.
0: Yeah, I picked up. That Crew, just to sort of take yeah, some of the pressure, so it was
1: a bit epic, but I mean, it was a fantastic weekend, and I, I felt like it should have been filmed and put on YouTube. Yeah,
0: it was like a John Cleese movie, wasn't it? Well, yeah. it
1: reminded me of the, the BBC programme that we've been watching. Um, what's it boiling point? No, not boiling point celebrities traveling across the Europe. Oh,
0: right, yes, boiling race point. across, race like across the world.
1: Yeah, it's a bit like that mother son traveling, coming across obstacles. Spending all their money, you know, had yes. all the elements of okay.
0: that show. Uh it's been, yeah. So, well, anyway, <laughs> you return knackered, um, but, you know, you've been to Edinburgh, so that's always a positive. But, uh, yeah, most unfortunate. Uh, and we ought to mention that we have a book coming out this week.
1: Yes, we do, by the lovely Rob Gittins. Yeah. Can I trust you?
0: I think you can trust me.
1: It has the unfortunate um, acronym of City.
0: Yeah, not liking that as a United fan. <laughs> but,
1: but yes, uh, Can I Trust you, know, you is out tomorrow. The
0: one positive this weekend, in many ways, apart from seeing my son, was the fact that City lost and United won. So that's a rare, rare occurrence that those things happen. But Johnny yes, Good. Can I Trust You is out.
1: Which is, interestingly, starts off on, on a Tuesday train. On Tuesday the 10th. Starts off on a train. Yeah. So... I think, I've spoken to Rob about this, and he says he does get quite a lot of inspiration because he travels from his home in the South Wales to London. West Wales. Oh, South, isn't
0: it? No, no, he's in West Wales.
1: Oh, I thought he was sort of Carnarvon in the South.
0: No, Carnarvon's definitely not in the South.
1: There's one in the North, one in the South. Oh, right. But his postcode is... Swansea. No, not Swansea, Carnarvon in the South. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He's from Wales and he does a lot of train travel. Right, good. (laughs) And he gets inspired to write on trains. So I recommend you get this book and you will know exactly what I mean.
0: Absolutely. Well, look, it's been a pleasure to speak to you and uh, we'll have continued this argument about where Rob Gittins actually lives (laughs) and we'll give you the answer next week when we talk to J.G. Kelly. (laughs) Yeah, I know you you have. Anyway, we, we will debate that yet further. Um, as we debate many, 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 many things. And the outcome is on the Hobeck website, www.hobeck.net, for details of all our books, our authors, our audiobooks, all that stuff, our blogs, and uh, you can find it there. Or indeed archpub.net, should you need our publishing services arm, and uh, Adrian Hobart narration for,
1: you know... The voice. A bit more of this
0: voice, um, if you can stand it. Anyway, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. I'm Adrian Hobart.
1: I'm Rebecca Collins.
0: And together we wish you a wonderful and
1: creative
0: week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobec.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit.